All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 19, and we're going to pick it back up where we left off. I'm going to double up just a little bit and just kind of over, go over where we did leave off. And so we're going to look at, I'm going to start in verse 14, and, uh, you know, we talked about the seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish priest uh, and chief of the priest, excuse me. And his seven sons, and who, you know, they go in, and, and because they evidently had saw Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus, they took it upon themselves that they were going to try that trick. And <laughs> they went in and, of course, uh, found a man who was possessed. And they said, I adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And I love the demon's response. You know? Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? You know, there's an old movie, and I almost, I never try to refer to movies, but I can't help it, this one is so, it just, there's an old, dumb, uh, it was a comedy, scary movie, but it was a comedy, it was, had Roddy McDowell, it was called Fright Night. Many, it's really old. But in the, plot there's this vampire that lives next door and the kid uh, who encourages Roddy McDowell who he sees on television Roddy McDowell's a vampire slayer but he really is not he's an actor he's an actor you know and he's just got a television show and this kid really thinks that he can slay you know vampires so he actually goes to the studio and of course it's a comedy it's a movie and he actually gets Roddy McDowell who's just trying to appease the kid he goes with him to this house of this real vampire that lives next door. And Roddy, of course, opens up his magical box that he has of vampire slaying material, of which the first thing he pulls out is a crucifix, you know, it's a cross. And as the vampire's coming down the stairwell, and of course the guy that played it was very menacing looking, did a really good job. And he's moving slowly down the stairs, you know. And, and Roddy's moving slowly. And he's shaking the whole time. Because even in the movie, he was up there in age. But he, was, he looked like a frail old man. And, and probably was when he made the movie. But he's shaking. And he's got that cross. And as the vampire comes nearer and nearer, he's, he, and the cross is as big as he is. It's a huge one. And he's shaking. He's shaking. And all of a sudden, the vampire reaches out, and he said, you forgot one thing. And he reached out, and he grabbed that cross, and he crushed it. He said, you have to believe it. And I thought, wow, I don't know who wrote that script, but he must have been a Christian. See, that's, that's the difference. So often, you know, we think it's just by citing a verse or calling upon the name of Jesus. I remember when I was pastoring Calvary Chapel one time, I had a family that was visiting. And after service, I was up in our bookstore, and people would always pass through there and ask me questions or whatever they had. And this guy seemed like a nice fellow. He, he, he kept wanting to ask me questions, but he started talking about this group of people that he uh, fellowshiped with. And he was talking about, and he threw this thing out about how, you know, if even the world, you see, would go by the standards of the Bible, that somehow they would benefit from everything that's in it. 
And I said, let me get this straight. Let me just so I make sure I understand what you're saying. If an unbeliever just simply does the things that are written in the Bible, as far as, you know, uh, he seemed to think that this would bring health, wealth, and prosperity. If you just did what it said. And I said, oh, I got news for you, brother. Your, 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 your theology is so wrong. Because we're talking about the kingdom of God. In order to be affected by the kingdom of God, you have to be a resident of the kingdom of God. Then the benefits of the kingdom are yours. The Bible says, even Jesus, it is his Father's good will to give you the kingdom. But you have to believe. You have to believe. You have to be in the family in order for the name of Christ to be of any effect for you. You can't just willy-nilly run in and start throwing the name of Jesus at a demon if you don't believe in Jesus. Why? Because you are going to be prevailed upon. And the demons will say, who are you? And you're going to run out of that house beaten and naked, just like these seven sons of Sceva did. They got a big fool in that day. You know, all of a sudden they were going, wait a minute. <laughs> we bit off a little more than we could chew. I mentioned it last time, and, and just as a reminder, if you are a child of God, and if you are doing ministry, which I think every Christian has a ministry, you might not know what it is, but you're probably doing it. You know, well, it's, uh, that's a whole other sermon. But, you know, if your ministry is lifting up the name of Jesus Christ and you're propagating the word of God, the devil knows your name. They know you. They also hate you. They also want to destroy you. And they want to destroy your effectiveness for the kingdom of God, for leading people to him. But the beauty of it is, is that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. You don't fear the gates of hell. We run into them with the word of God in front of us. You know, we're not provoking a fight with the enemy. We will simply say, the Lord rebuke thee, and we will quote a few scriptures, because the devil might be able to quote it, but he doesn't know it. He doesn't understand it. That's why he tried it on Jesus, and it backfired on him. He quoted it to him, but he didn't understand it. You know, so there's a spiritual side of things. There's a spiritual realm. And isn't it interesting that we see in the Word of God, we see the issue of demons and possession but you don't hear it talked about much anymore. Did the devil quit possessing people? Did the demons just give up tormenting people? I mean, am, am I mistaken on this? Or does that stuff still go on? It still goes on. We call it different things now. Without getting too controversial, but you know, sometimes we label it things that it might not be. Maybe we label it mental illness. Maybe we label it other things. I'm not saying there isn't mental illness. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. But I'm saying that sometimes those type of things can appear. You know, when a demon has the control of a person. The Bible says Satan walks about, you know, seeking whom he may devour. He takes captive the children of disobedience at his will. They're open targets to him. Now the children of God, of course, the angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. We have no fear of those things. But there's a real 
real evil. Satan is, is, is absolutely real. I mean, but, you know, he's, uh, he's at bay in the house of God, in the kingdom of God, excuse me, and, and with the children of God who have control over that. But we still need to be uh, open, is what I'm trying to tell you. These guys were casting out a demon. Well, the problem is they had no ability to do so. The demon did not obey their authority. You remember when the disciples came back after Jesus sent them out two by two? They came back rejoicing, and they were freaked out because they said, even the demons, you know, even the demons are obedient to our word. I mean, and, and they're, wow. Jesus said, don't marvel that the demons, you know, listen to you. Marvel more that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's what you ought to marvel at. But the fact is, is that they do listen. And I haven't ran into it many times in my ministry, but I have run into it a few times. And it's very easy to take care of. But you need to be prayed up and you need to be uh, prepared for that and open to it. But it's real. And uh, just because we don't see it, uh, maybe you have and you didn't know it. And so, so often that can happen. But boy, if, if you've got a real thriving ministry, demons seem to let you know that they're, in your, you know, they're around because they just don't like you. And you'll find that there's a big conflict of interest. But these guys, they got a fool in that day. Look at verse 17. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord was magnified. So it's interesting to me that even the Lord uses the antics, if you will, of these vagabond Jews getting their proverbial butt kicked by a demon to magnify the name of the Lord Jesus. God will use anything to magnify the name of the Lord because that's really what it's all about. Is lift, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw them in unto myself. Everything. God is going to magnify Jesus. That's how you can tell what a ministry is really about. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit is come, he will not speak of himself, but he will speak of me. And so the Holy Spirit always is going to magnify the name of Jesus. And that's how you can tell when a ministry is really centered or has the centrality of Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. If you're taking note, you need to make note of that. So magnified, mag, excuse me, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. <laughs> The word of God always prevails when it's, when it is propagated, when it grows. The word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. One of the things that happens, though, is when Jesus is magnified and his word is taught, the result will be the confession of sin. People just do it. Doesn't say that Paul preached a sermon here. Doesn't say that he gave them an altar call doesn't say that he asked them to come and confess their sins and get right with Jesus. It was a natural, supernatural reaction to people who were genuinely listening and watching 
what was going on. They heard the word of God. They saw the actions. And what did they do? They confessed and showed their deeds. I think that's typical. When people, when the word of God, when the Holy Spirit, you know, we, we understand that the Holy Spirit is in the world first wooing people, you know. He comes in, he's with us, that is drawing us, telling us we need Christ. Then he is in us as we come to Christ. And then as we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, he is overflowing from us. So there's those three aspects of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But that first time, he's, he's there wooing people. And so using those things, whether it was uh, them watching uh, these uh, seven men get their butts kicked and, and uh, you know, and, and, the, and the demon even screaming that he knew Jesus, he knew Paul. Whether it was that, whether it was they just heard the word of God from other people who had been listening to Paul. The outcome of that, the result of that was that many of these people came and confessed and showed their deeds. I want to encourage you, especially if you're listening by radio. So often when people come to Jesus, the first thing they want to do, especially if they join a church, and that's, that's great, get into a Bible teaching church. But so often the thing that they want to do is they want to put their past to rest. And what I mean by that is that they want to kind of close the door on it. Sweep it under the rug, so to speak. And I understand that. Those of us who have not had a very the word I'm looking for? Nice past. <laughs> many, many of us haven't. Some of our stories are pretty wretched. We just as soon forget it. We would just as soon anybody who knew it would forget it. And I understand that sentiment. I've, I've got a similar story. But here's the problem with that. So often, when we don't use our story for His glory, the devil will somewhere down the road take a key, a skeleton key, if you will, and put it into the lock of that closet of yours. And he's apt to pop the door open. And the stories of your past are apt to be told by the enemy and not by you. When we could use his story, our story, for his glory, because, you know, it, it doesn't matter what your story is. I mean, I, I've heard people tell, oh, Doug, I could never, you know, I, I've done this and I've done that. I said, listen, everybody has to come to saving knowledge of Jesus. Some of you might not know, maybe some people listening by radio do know, Skip Isaac. Pastors uh, did for years. He pastored one of the largest Calvaries there is. It's uh, in Albuquerque. And Skip had one of the most wretched testimonies I ever heard. He grew up, literally grew up, sitting at the feet of Pastor Chuck Smith. Never smoked, never drank, never tasted of any of that, never had premarital sex, never did anything that we would consider to be, ooh. But his testimony is that when he got to be 18 and the Lord began to convict him of his sin, See, the problem is, it's not that this, sinning doesn't make you a sinner. We realize that, right? We sin because we are. We're born one. So we do what is natural. But even here, he, you, you still have to have that born-again experience. Regardless of whether you never smoked, never chewed, never went with girls that do. 
you still had to come to a point in your life when you accepted Jesus Christ. So it's not how good you was, not how bad you was. It's, it's using whatever it was that God has allowed you to go through in your journey to him. Using that as a testimony, a story of his glory that you might help others see that God saves people. He saves wretches like me and like you. And none of us have done anything that's any worse in the eyes of God than some of somebody who's never done those things at all. Why? Because whether you fall from the eighth story or you fall from the 85th story, the result is the same. So whether you've never smoked, chewed, or went with girls that do, or you was the rottenest wretch that the world had ever seen, you still needed Jesus to get to heaven. You still needed Jesus for forgiveness, for your righteousness, for your sanctification, for your justification. You still needed that. And that's what he extends to every person. So if you have a story that's maybe not so Skip Isaac. Tell it. Confess it. Show your deeds. Not to glory in those things, because we, you know, we are ashamed of the things wherein we had no profit in those things in the past. As Paul the Apostle said, we're, in, we're some of you, but now you're clean, now you're washed, now you're pure by the Word of God. But use that story so that people will hear that Jesus saves, that Jesus restores that Jesus loves all of us. And he wants to do that. We just need to do that. These people came and confessed their deeds. Many of them also, which had curious arts. These were guys who, uh, they practiced occult stuff. And one of the things that they did was they were convicted that the books and the things and the things that they were practicing, the occultic things that they were doing, was opening a door to spiritual infiltration into their life that was not good. We just saw the, the Sceva brothers try, trying, to, trying to cast out a demon. So, you know, people like this, you know, they would get into the curious arts, which were magical things and mystical things. And, and, and even today, we have an enormous amount of people doing it. You know, look at all the ghost-busting shows that are on television. And a lot of these people, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear the experts. You ever listen to the experts? Oh, dear Jesus. I sit back and I, it, and I have to laugh a little bit because they're just so stupid. I can't, you know, they have no idea what they're dealing with. They're going, yes, you know, it's a, a spirit who is, just hasn't moved on, you know, and and isn't it interesting, they always want to turn out the lights in a house. I always wonder, why does a spirit care whether the lights are on or off? You ever think about that? But they always turn the lights off, and of course the eerie music comes on. Because it's more scarier and dark when there's eerie music playing. You know. But what they do is they are practicing something we call spiritualism. It's been around since the turn of the century. And they're really trying to contact the dead. And I think at the base of their pursuit is the desire to know and believe that there is life after death. I think that's really what it is. 
but it leads them to a very dangerous place. Why? Because they're not dealing with Grandma Jones who died and went, you know, and can't find her way out the door, and so she's haunting the, you know, the bathroom, you know, or, or, or the parlor. That's not what they're dealing with. What they're dealing with is a demon who's tormenting them, who's toying with them. And they think because a demon will recite certain words or maybe even people. I said, do you realize that demons have been around for a long time? And God knows how many there is because a third of them fell from heaven. What's a third? I don't know, but I bet it's a lot. And Satan, you know, when you think of Satan, remember, he's just a created being. So he's walking about. It's not like he's omniscient. He's not like God. He's not the antithesis of God. He's not the opposite. He's not. He's just an angel. But he has an army. And they've been around a lot. If you ever want to read a very interesting perspective on it. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's very interesting. You know, one of the first books I ever read when I rededicated my life. It's a great book. But that's what they're dealing with. They're dealing with demons, you know, and they, they, because they don't understand the Word of God. But if they would just read the Word, they would know that there is life after death. They would know what is to come. I have not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men. The things that the Lord has prepared that love Him. But read on, brother. But He has revealed them to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So everything you can imagine, Jesus is the answer to it all. He's revealed them to us through him and through his word. That's why the study of the word of God is so important. If they would just put the effort into reading the word as they do into trying to sit around and talk into a little recorder hoping that some static FM wave picks up some distant voice from the other side giving them a glimpse of hope or something they'd be so much better off, but so is the case. But these people, they saw the error of their way. Because they saw the danger, and because they heard the word, now they come, they bring their books, their curious arts, the, the things that are leading them astray, and they burn them. I think it's important sometimes that bridges are burnt. I've heard people say, oh, I don't want to burn any bridges. No, some bridges need to be burned. Some do. When people come to the Lord, so often, sometimes they'll stay in that place which has been a detriment to their well-being. They will stay in that place which has been a place of self-destruction. And ultimately, sometimes, it will simply be a bridge back to perdition. I remember many years ago, I was out in California, and I was actually there out there to baptize my brother who had given his life to the Lord. And my brother had been an avid alcoholic. He loved beer. And he'd been that way since, I, since he was in the Army. As, you know, by this time, I don't remember how old he was, but I'm sure he was like late 30s at the time. And every picture I had of him up to that point, he had a Budweiser in his hands, what he drank. Never saw him without one. That's what he had, Budweiser. And I remember going out there, and, and when I got to the house, he, he had a beautiful home. And he had had these guys come in, and they built this wall, uh, one whole wall. And it had, like, just wooden, it was wooden, but like a shadow box, but gigantic. You know what a shadow box is, right? But gigantic, covered the whole wall. 
And it was all different sizes. And what it housed was, and I didn't even realize it until I started looking at it, it housed all these antique beer bottles that he had bought at great sums of money. Some of them were like 150 years old. And, you know, I, I don't know whether they still fizzed or not. And I said, wow, man, this stuff still had the label. He told what year it was. I mean, he knew everything there was to know about beer. Well, after two weeks of being there, I had taken him to the Word and because he wanted to be baptized, but I wanted to make sure he understood what salvation was all about. So he said he wanted to, you know, he, was made, he made a, a, a confession of faith. He wanted to be baptized. I said, fine. Took him out and baptized He had two big, beautiful refrigerators in his uh, kitchen. One housed nothing but beer. Yeah, big, you know, stainless steel, both sides. It was just a refrigerator, not one side freezer. All it housed was beer. That's, that's how much he drank. And he went in there, and on his own accord, he emptied that whole thing out, poured it all out. You know. I actually watched him be delivered from nicotine addiction, um, alcohol, and amphetamines uh, in one day. The Lord delivered him from it, just like that. And, and that, was, that was miraculous, and that was very cool. And, but but I, well, I was there for a month, so a couple weeks later, I'm getting ready to go to the airport. I, I had to be, you know, the next day I'm leaving. And we're sitting there, and we're, you know, we've been rejoicing the whole time, having Bible studies, you know. They were inviting all the friends over. I was singing my little Jesus songs and teaching Bible studies. It was just a great time. And I'm getting ready to leave. It's the day before, and I'm sitting there, and John says, wow, is there any advice you give to me? And all of a sudden, I look up, and I realized, oh, dear Lord, there's the great wall of beer and it's still there. And I'm looking, I'm staring at it, and I, you know, I'm going, Lord, should, I mean, it's old. Certainly he wouldn't know. John goes, what are you looking at? I said, uh, wow, I'm looking at a bridge. That's what I told him. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm looking at a bridge. He says, I still don't want you to know. I said, that wall, brother, that's a bridge. That bridge needs to be burnt. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, I'm talking about, is any of that stuff drinkable? He said, probably some of it. Are you good with that? And he goes, man, brother, you drive a hard bargain. And I said, I'm not driving a hard bargain. I'm saying, is that a temptation to you? Is it? And he went into the other room and he came out with these milk crates. He goes, help me load it. And I said, absolutely. So we got all this stuff and we took it out to the curb and got the hose out. And of course, this is Los Angeles. And literally, I start, and some of this stuff that was like 100 years old, was still, it would still foam. And we're pouring it in the gutter. And of course, he's got a hose out there. And uh, there was a couple vatos across the, across the street. And they're sitting over there watching us. They're like, hey, what, what you doing, man? Yeah, give me one of those. I said, come over here, I'll give you something you don't want. Let me give you Jesus, brother. That's what you need. You want the beer, but you need the Lord, you know. But, but my point being is that, you know what? These guys brought these books out, and it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. You know how much that is in today's money? $6,400,000. 
Think about that one for a moment. $6,400,000 in today's currency. That's what 50,000 pieces of silver was at that time. Why? Because books were very expensive because they were written by hand. You know, and they were rare. But you know what the interesting part was? They didn't care. They never considered how much it was. They just wanted it out of their life. I remember going through my own library, and I remember when I rededicated my life to the Lord, I had been into some pretty curious things because my dad had kind of led, us, led me in that direction, things on astral projection, spiritualism, those type of things. I remember taking those books out, and I, didn't, and I hadn't even read this chapter yet. And I remember throwing them in a, in a dumpster, and I remember I took them out there and threw some gas on them and burned them because I realized that it was a bridge back to something that I did no longer want to do. And there's a time for that, but you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a book, it can be other things. You know, what is that thing in your life when you gave your life to the Lord that you know had a detrimental, you know, self-destructive aspect to it? See, those bridges need to be burned. Sometimes it's even people. Just to drive my point home, I'm going to tell one more story and then we'll move on because I think it's pertinent. I remember years ago, my son-in-law after he had rededicated his life to the Lord he actually moved to Ohio and where I started discipling him and I remember he was actually living with me at the time and, and uh, he came to me and he said dad I, I got a I got a problem and I said what do you mean he goes you know he said I never told you this. he goes but my other brother he says it just really bothers me he said this guy called himself a Christian, and he got saved, and he goes, and you know, he said, I haven't seen him in four years, haven't heard from him, don't know where he's at. And I said, he just left? He went, yeah. I said, tell me the nature of your brotherhood. He goes, what do you mean? I said, what was your relationship with him? He goes, well, he was my brother. I said, no, 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 no. I've got brother. I've got five brothers, but I've got a different relationship with all of them. What was the nature of your relationship with him? He goes, well, he was, my, uh, he was my drinking partner. Oh. So you guys partied together, right? Not just brothers, but you were part of your brothers, huh? Yeah. I said, did you ever consider, true story, did you ever consider that you were a bridge that needed to be burned? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever think that he wanted to serve the Lord? His desire to serve Jesus was stronger than his tie to you, even his flesh and blood. So he had to get away from it because you at that time was a bad influence on him. Did, that, did you ever consider that? And I said that not knowing anything. And I said, but here's what I want to encourage you to do. I said, call your mother. Get on the horn. I know somebody knows where he's at. He's not left the planet. He's told somebody. He just didn't tell you. So he got on the phone. And next thing I know, it was, I think it was a couple days. And he called me up. He said, you're not going to believe this. And I said, oh, yeah. Well, what, what is it? Let, lay it on me, man. Tell me what God's done. He goes, you're not going to believe where he's at. And I said, where's he at? He goes, he's in Ohio. I said, really? I said, where at? He goes, he's in Bible college up in Columbus. I said, then you need to go up and see him. So he went up and seen him, told him that he had given his life to the Lord. And, of course, his brother now pastors a church in Michigan. 
And, but it's that kind of thing. But he said, and he even told him, he goes, and of course my son-in-law's name is Doug. He said, Doug, if I hadn't left, I couldn't do what I'm doing now. I had, I had to get away from it. You know, he had to burn that bridge. Now, the beauty is, is sometimes the Lord in his restoration will allow you through Jesus Christ to come and restore that bridge when it's no longer a threat, you see. These guys went out and burned their books, not counting the cost as far as not thinking it's anything dear to them. I know people who, when they come to the Lord, actually want to get rid of some of the stuff that's detrimental to them, so they'll sell it in the yard sale. Oh, I'm serious. I knew a guy that was going to do it one time. He'd went through all of his CDs, or not CDs at the time, but he went through all of his tapes, okay, all of his music, and he pulled out all the stuff that he thought was bad for him. And he put it in a closet, and one day they were having a yard sale, and he was going through junk in the yard, and he found that bag that he thought was absolutely atrocious, the kind of music that he used to listen to. And he pulled that bag out, and the, 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 they said, what are you going to do with that? He goes, well, I'm going to put it in the yard sale. They said, well, why is it in the bag? He said, because it wasn't fit to listen to. And they said, well, then why would you sell it to somebody else? And I said, you got a great point. So I took them out and burned them too. True story. But that's the way I thought. You know, I was a young kid. Paid a lot of money for those things. You know, it wasn't until I came across this and I read the book of Acts and I went, oh, my hands. I thought, you know, four or five bucks for a CD was, or a, a tape was a lot of money, but 50,000 pieces of silver. Imagine that pile. But that's what the Word of God, that's what a transformed life looks like. When a person has really come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, the transformation is remarkable and it's unmistakable. They will make sacrifices that make no sense. The world sits back and looks at it and goes, you're out of your mind. You could get good money for those. I'll buy that off of you. And they go, no. They burn them. Burned them. And they needed to be. Sometimes those bridges need to be burned. Look at verse 21. And these things, when, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Acacia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also go to Rome. So it's obvious to anyone reading the book of Acts that once Paul put his foot to the mission trail, we can look at it up there over in the overhead, he never really took his foot off of it. Paul never really overstayed his self in any place. I mean, you know, he had a few places he stayed for a couple years, and, but really never overstayed. He was constantly really moving the rest of his life until, of course, he got to Rome. But he just, he did that. His purpose at, the, at leaving Ephesus, though, and passing through Macedonia was to visit the churches. Uh, and during these visits, Paul was collecting, or he was sending those ahead of him and making a collection. You remember when we first started this, we looked in the very first chapters of Acts, and the church in Jerusalem had fallen into a false uh, way of governing, which was communism. And, of course, by this time, the church was totally bankrupt and was suffering dramatically. And so Paul actually was taking up collections for them, and he would have Timothy and, 
and as we're going to read here in a little bit, you know, in Corinthians, and, and told them to prepare these things ahead of time. And then as he was passing through, he would take the collection and go back to Jerusalem. I think it's interesting, and it shows you the heart of Paul. When you think about it, and I talked about it here a few weeks ago, you know, when Paul went back to Jerusalem, they, they were, they, you know, they didn't treat him totally well. You know, they were a little standoffish to Paul in Jerusalem, which is why he didn't stay there very long. But even though their treatment of him was a bit shady, his concern for them was unwavering. And I love that about him. You know, Paul had this desire to help, and so he was doing this, taking up these collections. And so that's kind of what he did. He was sending these guys out to pick up a collection because his heart was to go to Jerusalem, to drop that off, and then he was going to Rome, verse 22. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. So Paul stays in Asia, like I said, but he sends Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia with the letters to the church. And you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read this to you. This is in 2 Corinthians, and just to give you a feel uh, for what some of these letters were like, we know what, what, what the content was because of what he wrote to the Corinthian church. And of course, Paul told them, he says, now look, take up this offering before I come. Take it up before I come. And he says, so that when I come, you know, there won't be a big fuss about it, and I'll just collect it, and then we can take it to Jerusalem. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. This is what Paul tells the Corinthian church. He says, but this I say, which he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful in the Greek is the word hilarious. It's where hilarity is what it means hilarious. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. And so, Paul was taking up these offerings, and, but he was clear to make, it, or to make it clear to them that it wasn't of necessity. It was a matter of bounty, and I like that word, because the word actually means a matter of the heart. Let it be a matter of the heart, you know? And he says, so when you give, you give according to as a man has and not according to what he doesn't have. You know, people who give presumptuously, you know, are foolish. Because really the Bible says you shouldn't do that. You should only give out of what you actually have. You know, you shouldn't say, well, you know, I'm supposed to get a check. And you know, what happens if the check don't come and you've made a pledge? That's why pledges are bad. You know, they just are, you're, you're making a promise that you don't know whether you're going to be able to, what if you die? You know, you make a pledge to my ministry, I want that money. And you go home with, the, I'm joking, right? Nobody even laughed at that never ask for a dime give me a break you know that's funny you know but you know but if you die you can't keep that word right that's crazy so you don't want to do that but and you, know, and you notice also Paul never when he sends out Timotheus and these guys when he sends these letters out he never asked for funds for himself never doesn't ask for money for his own ministry never he only asked for the church in Jerusalem it's the only thing he took an offering for now, there were people that supported his ministry, and I say, praise the Lord. And Paul said, praise the Lord. The church in Philippi financially supported Paul. And he told them, he says, look, it's not though I needed it. 
He says, but you, you, you minister to my, to, my, you know, to my needs. And he says, because I desire fruit in your life. I want to see fruit in your life. So when you do that, you know, it's always a blessing to me. When I've had people, and I do now, who support my ministry. And I appreciate that. It's, it helps us pay the radio time. But do I make a plea on radio? I won't do it. I never have. I'm not going to start now. I believe God will lead those who want to help, who want to partner with me to propagate the Word of God and see people. I think God will lay it on their heart, and I think they will do that. I shouldn't have to, you know. It's God's ministry, not mine. And I kind of got that from Paul. I just think that it's a beautiful thing that he did and the way he did it. But he was more concerned about the church in Jerusalem and getting back there so that he could purposely go forward onto Rome. Look at verse 23. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way. We know what he's talking about. For a certain man, Demetrius, a silversmith which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen like, uh, of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but also throughout all Asia, if you take a note, make note of that, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed whom all Asia and the world worships. Paul had enormous effect. You know, what a testimony to his ministry. Paul had persuaded many to turn away from their false gods. Not only here in Ephesus, but in all of Asia. He had made an enormous impact on these people's lives. Their biggest complaint about Paul was that his preaching had produced failure of their business. That's always funny to me. You know, because when people quit worshiping idols, they quit buying the idols that they worship. And Diana was a big, big religion. The Temple of Diana, which is where this happens, is over 400 feet long and it had 125 pillars around it it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world at its time beautiful the reason they built it is the humorous part i think is kind of ridiculous but it's true somebody was walking around out there one day and they found this little graven image of artemis and artemis is the latin word for diana artemis is a little multi-breasted woman if you've ever seen it look her up on your uh, pad or whatever you'll see a little image but you got like all these breasts it's just it's, it's sickening looking it's this weird you know but they found this little black image and somebody went jupiter sent it down from heaven and people believed it and they spent probably god knows how much money to build this enormous temple that people went there to worship this goddess at and these guys made their money by making these little images of Artemis, okay, or Diana. And they would sell them to the people, and the people would come and they would pay sacrifice. It was just crazy. 
And we look at that stuff and we go, why would anybody but... You know, keep this in mind. That even at this time, you know, when we look at the issue of mythology and we read mythology and we look at this, we think, who would believe that? Well, evidently a lot of people. But also keep in mind that even at the time, there was many people who said, who would believe that? There were many people who were people of reason. Reasonable people. People who considered that these things had to be absurd. Why? There was no proof of it. No proof of it. How do you prove that Jupiter sent the little black image down that somebody said he found? How do you prove that? What's the basis of your truth? Because that's what they're claiming it was, was truth. And yet, many people do. Not unlike today. Look at all the false religion. Look at all of them. And I sit back and I marvel at the craziness that people will believe. With no proof. None. Zero. No evidence. You look at Islam, and you read the stuff that Muhammad wrote. And here's a guy who simply told people, yeah, God told me that. I wrote it. Here it is. Right here in black and white. Wrote it myself. God told me. Now you've got to believe it. Oh, I'm his prophet. You've got to believe that too. And if you don't, I'm just going to have to kill you. So, you know, I know I'm oversimplifying it, but that's really the truth. No proof. How, how do you prove? How do I prove to you that God told me to write this? How do I prove that to you? And make you believe it. I mean, you do realize there's one billion Muslims in the world today, right? Based upon the writings of one man. One man with no proof. No miracle. No miracles. Nobody raising from the dead. Nothing. Just his word and the threat of killing you. Evidently is enough to make a whole lot of people believe. But you know what? There was another guy who called himself a prophet of God. Said he was the restoration of the church. He came around about 1825. Had a vision. Wrote a book called the Mormon book. And he told everybody, yeah, I'm God's prophet and this is the gospel that you better believe because everybody else is a false religion. Every Christian denomination is false. Only the Mormon religion is right. And oh yeah, here's the book with no proof. None. Zero. All religions are that way. Christianity is the only one, when you put it to the test, holds up. Jesus came along and Jesus said, I have told you these things beforehand, so that when they come to pass, you might believe. So often people think that Christianity teaches blind faith. Not so. Not true at all. Christianity teaches reasoning. Come and let us reason together, saith the Lord. 
And though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But let's reason it out. Let God tell you how and why. And let him show you the miracles. Look at the testimony of 500 witnesses who saw Jesus himself raised from the dead, ate dinner with him afterward, fellowshiped with him for over 40 days, saw him ascend into heaven. People who not only say that they saw it, but they gave up their own physical life to say it was true. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I've always been a man of reason. I've been a man of science for years. And I've always known that people don't die for no reason. Oh, there might be one idiot, you know, who's just dumb enough to even die for something that he knows is not true. But two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I don't know, man. The odds are against it. You know, of course, John died of old age on the island of Patmos, but they tried to kill him. They tried. Put him in boiling oil and everything else, but the rest of them, we know from history, not just the Bible. We know from history. Died horrendous deaths. Saying only that they had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they were put to death. They weren't put to death because they were Christians. They were put to death because of their witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there were so many more. But Christianity is the only religion whose scriptures date back so far. You look at the Bible itself, that we, the Old and New Testament. 66 books written on three separate continents authored by 35 different men from so many different backgrounds. And some were doctors, some were lawyers, some were tax collectors, some were just uneducated men, fishermen. And yet, write about something as controversial as the nature of God, and yet it is in such harmony with each and every book that it's a miracle that we even have it. And it's the only one of its kind. But yet, so many false religions, like Diana, claim to have truth. Oh, we're trusting in this. For what? You know, there's a... Oh, dear Lord, I, did, I, I forget how many cults I, I, I read here recently that are just in the Christian religion. Thousands, you know, that have cropped up. And they always have to come up with their own extracurricular books, you know, other writings. They can't just stick with the Bible because the Bible's so clear. Now you know why Jesus said, when the Son of Man shall return to the earth, will he find any faith upon it? I'd like to think that everybody's going, but I got bad news for you. I'm not sure about that. I don't think so. That's why it's important that when we talk about the truth, that we're able to give an answer to every man, you know, to show them in the scriptures. But these guys, they were upset. They were losing their income. Paul's effectiveness in his ministry, even at a time when 
there were all kinds of cults even in Paul's time and all kinds of people that worshipped a plethora of gods. And yet people were forsaking that at a massive rate because they were turning to the only true and living God, which was Jesus Christ. And they were doing that because Paul's faithfulness to teaching the Word of God and to propagating that no matter where he went. And now Demetrius is upset because his income is affected by it. Because now nobody wants to buy his little idols of Artemis, or him and all the other artisans. And so now they have their sights set on the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 28. And when they heard these saying, these things sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And the whole city was filled with confusion. Well, it always is when you're an idiot. Having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. Now think about this one for a moment. This is a big, tumultuous group. On the verge of riot. On the verge of riot. Why? Because of Paul. This is their main complaint. They've lost money. They've lost income. They're basically accusing him of, of ruining their lives. And now they're all screaming, great is the, you know, the Diana of the Ephesians, you know. And Paul goes, hey, let me go in and talk to him. I mean, think about that, friend. He's already been beaten. He's already been stoned. He's already hazarded his own life for the cause of Christ several times. And yet, he's willing to go back in and put his life at risk again. Because there's no doubt in my mind, as we read on, as, as bad as this situation got, they'd have killed him. They would have killed him if he went in there. But he was willing. And you've got to respect that. You know, here's a guy who was going, ah, let me go talk to him. Let me go re reason with him. And, and these guys are going nuts. You know, they just, he was the last person in the world that they would have wanted to talk to at that time. And so the disciples rightly did not let him go in. Verse 31. Certain of the chief of uh, Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not venture himself into the theater. Paul, don't do it, man. Do not go in there. Step away from the door, Paul. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And the more part knew not wherefore they were even come together. The place was total confusion. Now this temple's huge. I told you it was like 425 feet long. <laughs> and it's filled. Their court is filled with these people. I mean, this is a huge, this is a big deal. These guys are really upset, and they're very mad. And the strange part is that now there's all kinds of people coming into this. It kind of sounds like what we saw going on in our own country, doesn't it? You got people who are showing up. Some are screaming one thing. Some are screaming something else. Most of them don't even know why they're there. We just want to be a part of the action, you see. Very little has really changed, hasn't it? I mean, it's strange. But they're screaming, but they didn't even know why they were there. And they drew Alexander, verse 33, out of the multitude, and the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander beckoned with the hand, and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, oh, buddy, 
all with one voice about the space of two hours, they cried out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. I think it's funny and sad at the same time that when mobs get crazy and when people are trying to put forth something that I think even in their mind they realize when they hear it sounds ridiculous, that if we just say it loud and proud, somehow it'll become true. And that's what these guys begin to do. They begin to holler, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they do this for the space of two hours. Because they saw a Jew walk in, and that really offended them. And in order to combat that, they begin to cry out that great is Diana. This is absolute craziness. Listen, you can say things loud, you can say it proud. But it doesn't make it true. What is the basis of your truth? This jumps out at me as I've read Acts 19 so many times I couldn't count them. I always come to this because I go, why are so many people so devoid of reasoning? And I know I've heard a guy preach one time, he goes, well, you've got to realize it back then, you know. Back then, you know, they, they weren't that learned. And I didn't say nothing. I caught him afterward and I said, son, you're so wrong about that. It isn't funny. Do you realize that one of the largest, vastest libraries in the world at that time was in Alexandria? Housed millions of scrolls of books written on every subject that you could possibly imagine. The air of reasoning had arrived many philosophers, and I'm not touting them or anything, but many of them had, you know, Aristotle, you know, taught on reasoning. Reasoning was something that, that a lot of people just, you know, it, I don't know, it, it, they have like an affinity against it, you know. They're, they're more led by their peers than they are anything else. And so if you get enough people shouting it, enough people's going, no, come on, let's all, yeah, and all of a sudden, you know, it's just, my daughter used to have a t-shirt that said, I, I believe the, the quote on it said, never underestimate the power of stupid people in large numbers. <laughs> yeah. And it's true. It's true because you put enough dumb people together and crazy stuff happens. Because it's that mob mentality. One person's doing, another person dies. Next thing you know, they're burning trucks, they're tearing down. They, they were up here at our own capital the other day wanting to tear the statue of Columbus off of its pedestal because it's a symbol of white supremacy. I was going, you do realize the man was a Spaniard, right? I mean, <laughs> do you realize that? I mean, you hadn't read that one in your book, right? He's European, okay? I'm just saying, before you start going to jail for tearing down the statue, you might want to reconsider that a little bit. I'm sure in the mind of Mr. Columbus at the time, white supremacy wasn't on his mind. Getting paid by the king, Ferdinand was really what he was looking for, and he was looking for gold. And he didn't really care who he had to conquer to do it. Just like 
you know, so many before him and so many after. It wasn't a matter of white supremacy. He was actually propagating, believe it or not, <laughs> the gospel. And I have to say that with a chuckle because it is kind of strange the way they did it. They'd have a Bible in one hand and a sword, <laughs> sword in the other, kind of like Islam, you know. Yeah, believe or die. You know, and in which case, you know, you make a few converts, but you can't really trust them because first chance they get, they're going back to the old ways, you know, because it's not real in the first place. But it's a part of history. It's a part of history. And now we have people who are just devoid. They want to just eliminate all the history, even the negative stuff. You know, there's an old adage that says those that forget the past are condemned to repeat it. And they want to not only forget it, they want to remove it and to rewrite it or something. I don't know. But no matter how loud you say something, this is the point I want you to get across. No matter how many times you say it, it doesn't make it true. See, truth is true whether you believe it or not. It is always the truth. Jesus said, my words, speaking of his words, are spirit, they are life, and they are truth. Even speaking of himself, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and he is the incarnate word. But he doesn't ask us just to believe it. He said, I've told you these things beforehand so that when it comes to pass, you might believe. That's why prophecy is so important. And if we're going to be students of the Bible, we have to be students of prophecy. Because we're watching some of it happen, unfold right before our very eyes. I do believe that the coming of Jesus Christ is soon. You know, we have only the Bible to turn to. And we look to the prophecy, and I realize that some Christians poo-poo it, you know, they downplay it. But, you know, when you look at the prophecy of the ten virgins, and, you know, and Jesus said, you know, five of them were right. Had their wicks trimmed, their vessels were filled with oil, which represents the Holy Spirit. Five of them won. And when the, when the keeper came, the five that were ready went in. You know, Jesus will come and it will be like a thief in the night and be ready, you know, be ready. You know, not when Jesus warned us that he told us, be ready. We don't know the day, but we do know the time and we should understand the time in which we live. So, so many people don't. The age of reason has went out the window. It's done. There's never been a time like we're living in. I'm pretty sure that even during the 30s, when, when the world seemed like it went crazy, when Hitler was, you know, doing his juggernaut across Europe and just killing people left and right, he still knew which bathroom to go to. They still understood that. They understood what a male was and what a female was. There were things that just were normal in the world even then, even though some things were going crazy. Now, everything is going crazy and nothing's normal. We're even told as a prophetic thing. Paul said, beware when they shall say evil is good and good is evil. And we're seeing it. We're watching it. How much time do we have? I don't know. 
but we're getting closer and that clock's ticking closer and closer even as I speak and uh, I could see the Lord coming back before I get home tonight you know I mean I'm being honest it's that close it's so once again occupy Jesus said till I come so we will live like we have a hundred years left uh, let me rephrase that we will plan like we have a hundred years left but we will live like we have 10 seconds or less you know that's the way we want to do it and uh, and keep our eye in the sky and our finger on the pulse of truth which is the word of God these guys kept screaming at the top of their voice that great is the Diana of the Ephesians it still didn't make it true and the word of God was still spreading through all of Asia because of Paul's preaching what a testimony that is what a blessing it would be to be able to duplicate that before that great and terrible day of the Lord hmm? let's pray father we love you do thank you for the time that we get to spend together Lord in your word and and just being encouraged by it and even in these tumultuous times Lord father when the mob mentality seems to be um, taking everybody father we know that your word prevails and we know that if we just glorify Jesus Christ if we magnify you and your word that those Lord father whom the Holy Spirit is calling will come and will believe but Lord Father, even in the midst of all these things, as the writer of Revelation said, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, we love you, and we look forward to your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.